This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Amanda, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of alcoholism and recovery. I'm here with my co-hosts, Ellie and Lisa. Hey, Amanda. Hey. This is my first time opening the show, so hopefully I can do as good a job as these ladies have done in the past. Wow. (laughs) I'm uh, much more comfortable being in the background, and I'm a bit nervous, so please bear with me. Tonight's show is going to be about pause which stands for Post-Acute Withdrawal Syndrome. And tonight we will talk about, we will share our own stories and how, they, how we were affected by the various physical and psychological symptoms that can be experienced and share ways to deal with and relieve the effects of pause. You do not have to be a long-time heavy drinker to experience these uncomfortable side effects, and understanding them can be key to maintaining your sobriety, especially in the early days. We will read some information from the book Staying Sober by Terence Gorski that explains pause very well. You may think withdrawal from substance abuse only refers to the immediate physical symptoms experienced when your body is trying to adjust to not having drugs and alcohol in its system. We are all mostly aware of some of the more obvious signs of withdrawal, shaking, sweating, racing heartbeat, muscle twitches, insomnia, and acute anxiety. Yet it is the sobriety-based symptoms, especially post-acute withdrawal, that make sobriety so difficult. 
The presence of brain dysfunction has been documented in 75 to 95% of recovering alcoholics and addicts tested. Recent research indicates that symptoms of post-acute withdrawal associated with alcohol and drug-related damage to the brain may contribute to many cases of relapse. Post-acute withdrawal means symptoms that occur after acute withdrawal. Post means after and syndrome means group of symptoms. Post-acute withdrawal is a group of symptoms of addictive disease that occurs as a result of abstinence from the addictive chemicals. In the alcoholic addict, these symptoms appear 7 to 14 days into, into abstinence after stabilization from acute withdrawal. Let's see. PAUSE is a biopsychosocial syndrome. Results from the combination of damage to the nervous system caused by alcohol or drugs and the psychosocial stress of coping with life without drugs or alcohol. Recovery causes a great deal of stress on its own. Many chemically dependent people never learn to manage stress without alcohol or drug use. The stress aggravates the brain dysfunction and makes the symptoms worse. The severity of pause depends on two things. The severity of the brain dysfunction caused by the addiction and the amount of psychosocial stresses experienced in recovery. The symptoms of pause typically grow to peak intensity over three to six months after abstinence begins. The damage is usually reversible, meaning the major symptoms go away in time if proper treatment is received. So there's no need to fear. With proper treatment and effective sober living, it is possible to learn to live normally in spite of impairments. But the adjustment does not occur rapidly. Recovery from nervous system damage usually required from six to 24 months with the assistance of a healthy recovery program. Recent research is showing that for some recovering people, the symptoms of pause often occur at regular moon cycle intervals and without apparent outside stressors. Often those 30, 60, 90, 120, 180, and one and two year sobriety dates seem to be triggering times for pause symptoms to increase. People recovering from long-term opiate and stimulant use often have pause symptoms for no apparent reason for up to 10 years after they have stopped using their drug of choice. Often pause symptoms appear to come and go without apparent reason and without any specific pattern. Individuals who intend to have a consistent long-term recovery must learn to recognize these symptoms and learn how to manage them. So what are the symptoms of post-acute withdrawal? How do you know if you have pause? The most identifiable characteristic is the inability to solve usually simple problems. There are six major types of pause symptoms that contribute to this. They are the inability to think clearly, memory problems, emotional overreactions and numbness, sleep disturbances, physical coordination problems, and general problems in managing stress. The inability to solve usually simple problems because of any or all of these symptoms leads to diminished self-esteem. A person often feels incompetent, embarrassed, and not okay about themselves. Diminished self-esteem and the fear of failure interfere with productive and challenging living. Let's take a look at some of the pause symptoms that contribute to the inability to solve usually simple, simple problems. This is Ellie, and I, I love the fact that I'm going to start out by talking about the inability to think clearly. That is certainly a topic that I know a lot about. <laughs> um, 
But there are several thought disorders experienced by a recovering person when pause is activated. Intelligence is not affected. It's, I think it's important to take note of that. It does not have anything to do with intelligence. It's more often something that's happening as, a, as an emotional stressor. It is, it is as if the brain is malfunctioning sometimes. Sometimes it works all right, and sometimes it's not. One of the most common symptoms is the inability to concentrate for more than a few minutes. Impairment of abstract reasoning is another common symptom of post-acute withdrawal. An abstraction is a non-concrete idea or concept, something that you cannot hold in your hand, take a picture of, or put in a box. Concentration is more of a problem when the ab is, concentration is more of a problem when abstract con concepts are involved. Another common symptom is rigid and repetitive thinking. The same thoughts that go around and around in your head and you are unable to break through this circular thinking in order to put thoughts together in an orderly way. And there's a lot of big words thrown around in, in those couple of um, paragraphs there, but I think that I can sort of, I can tie it into some personal experiences that I can relate to and understand now were pause. And they did happen to me up to six months into my, my early sobriety. The simple tasks that used to be very simple for me to do, I always go to the same grocery store, I always walk down the same aisles, I always buy the same things, and suddenly doing something as mundane as that was incredibly difficult because I could not hold a thought in my head for longer than a couple of minutes. I would get really easily overwhelmed with sights or sounds or questions, and for those of you with children, particularly young children, who we know how often they ask questions and the things that they want to know, that was very difficult for me because I could, I could barely concentrate on one thing, let alone several things. And, you know, before my drinking career, I was a, a multitasker extraordinaire. There were times I had to walk away from a grocery cart full of food and just leave because I was just too <laughs> overcome. And, and like Amanda mentioned, that does lead to reduced self-esteem. The rigid and repetitive thinking, the circular thinking, that is something that I continue to experience, but I can say it does definitely diminish over time. At first, my obsessive and circular thinking was more about, here's me not drinking, here's me not drinking. I mean, it would just kind of go around and around and around in my head. But it also related to very small things. You know, I could drop something on the floor and burst into tears. I could be lying in bed thinking about something that is really quite small and that would take on monumental proportions in my head. And, you know, these things did chisel away at my feeling like I'm never going to be normal again. I, you know, I need to drink to feel normal. It, these things can be very challenging in early recovery, and um, they absolutely do get better. Can I jump in with something, too? I actually, this one is probably, it was scared me the most, I think, when I, when I first got sober. I was actually home for five weeks, but then I went back to work, and I have a job where I have to multitask all day long, and it's people come up and ask me questions, and it's just nonstop, you know, a battering of, you know, switching gears, and for probably the first six months of going back to work, I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do my job. I felt um, overwhelmed. And it was exactly what you described. It was too much information, and I just couldn't process it the way that I had when I was drinking. And that scared me. I was like, how is it possible that drinking made me more effective at my job? And um, I'm very happy to report that that has changed and straightened itself out, and I'm back to being my normal self. But that took some time and took some patience, and I actually did uh, speak to my 
employers and said, I need to focus on some specific things. And so they helped me, they helped me get through that. I think that's an excellent point. One, one final thought on that, because I think it, in the earliest days of recovery, it's very tempting to think, but I was a better mother when I drank. I was a better employee when I drank. I got all my yard work done when I drank. I mean, those, that's, I think this particular symptom of pause can lead to those kinds of thoughts. Like, I'm less effective sober, and things were supposed to get better. It just takes time, really, yeah. is what we're saying. And this is Lisa, and I was going to just mention that I, I experienced very, very clearly exactly what you two ladies have just mentioned. I remember thinking there was no way I would be able to ever remember, I mean, concentrate and think clearly again. Everything seemed to have a kind of a, just a haze over it, and I could not wrap my brain around what was happening to me. And at that time, I wasn't familiar at all with Paul's. And I wish I had known then what I know now because it definitely does get better. And I remember doing little things to help myself, like make lists. And even now to this day, I love to communicate with lists because it was easier for me to cope with what was happening and what was expected if I knew, you know, if I had it written down in list form and I was able to check it off as I went along. But there, that now it's better than it was. But it, it really scared me too, Amanda. I remember thinking, what if I am never normal again? Whatever normal is. But yeah. um, I'm, I was going to tell a little bit about memory problems. Short-term memory problems are really very common when you're recovering. Like for me, I, I, I might have heard something, and I understood it when I, was, when I heard it, but within 20 minutes I forgot. What I, was, what I was told, or someone would have given me an instruction and I knew exactly what to do, and I had a plan to do it, but when I walked away, the memory was, became clouded, and sometimes it just disappeared completely. Sometimes during stressful periods, it was also difficult to remember significant events from the past. The memories were not gone, but I was just not able to remember them easily at times. Then I realized that I can't recall it, when I'm experiencing stress. And a lot of this for me was kind of, uh, things would come back to me that I hadn't thought of in years. And I could remember things that had happened from my childhood that I totally had blocked out, which was scary in itself because you're just walking along, minding your own business, and you remember a, a, something that you'd rather have, rather not remember. But it does, again, those, those, those things also get better. And because of memory problems in recovery, it may be difficult to learn new skills and information, learning skills by acquiring knowledge and building upon what I already had learned. Memory problems definitely make it difficult to build upon what I've already learned. And like I mentioned earlier, for me, it was really hard to remember things that happened short term, but I could remember things from many years ago. And today, I still can remember things that I thought I had forgotten or that I had purposely blocked out that are very, very clear in my memory, yet I can barely remember what day of the week it is sometimes, which Mm. might just come with the fact that I'm a really busy working mom. And some of that's just normal and, I think, going to happen if you're a person who multitasks like I do, or you two, Ellie and Amanda. But the memory problems were definitely scary for me. And I remember just, it was, everything was kind of spotty. I, I remembered in very spotty ways. And, but 
again, I was able to make lists and kind of develop a new routine. I had to relearn how to live. And by doing that, I found a way to cope and kind of keep things on track the way I needed to. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. I think it's incredibly common that memories may surface that we may have been drinking over and not even known that those were in the background. So not only are we in early recovery, but then suddenly these memories are surfacing and the anesthesia that we use to not think about those is now gone. And it's an additional challenge in early recovery because you can't remember where you put your grocery list, which makes your self-esteem go down. But all of a sudden you're remembering traumatic things or difficult things from your childhood or any time in your life. So that's kind of like a a one-two punch. But and we'll talk more later, we'll talk later in the show about ways to manage these symptoms. But for me, even just understanding that this is something almost to expect was comforting because I knew I could hear that it's going to get better. But that, right, I agree, it, Ellie. You don't, it's like, not like a lightning bolt out of the blue to think, right. to understand physiologically what's happening in my brain and why. Why can right. I remember something I did when I was five and I forgot what you just said? I think it it was very complicated for me personally because everything seemed so sharp, razor sharp, and I I felt so fragile at the beginning Mm -hmm. and of my sobriety, and I felt like the fact that I could not remember anything, it complicated so much. It it upset people around me, and I know it annoyed people. It annoyed me, and it really made me think, okay, it's official. I'm losing my mind. And I don't know, I guess I feel like I really want to stress more than anything else. A couple of times I remember thinking, well, this sucks. I mean, I might as well be drunk if I can't remember anything sober. But like you said, Ellie, when we start to understand what's happening to us, the difficulties don't seem so impossible to get past. I mean, I think that's key. I really want to stress that this is not permanent, but I, I feel like a lot of people are feeling this who are new to sobriety, and I, I really just want to make sure people know that it's not long-term. It does get better. It, as long as you don't drink. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. 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 Yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know, this is Amanda, and at the, I should have mentioned at the beginning of the show, but I forgot. <laughs> but, <laughs> I love it. Oh. That was good, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's the reason what, before, that why we thought of having this topic tonight is pause is so huge, and it's, it is so confusing, and a lot of people don't understand what is going on with them in early sobriety because of the... This pops up, it can pop up after two weeks, but it's almost more common at like three months that these things start happening. 
for me. And all of a sudden, you know, you're you're rolling around merrily along, and you think sobriety is awesome, and this is great, and then all of a sudden you feel like you're losing your mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And I had the benefit of going to quite a few rehabs, both voluntary and involuntary. And when I got to learn about these things, and it really helped me a lot, just understanding what was going on with me and being able to take a deep breath and say, okay, it's going to get better. And, right. and these are the tools that I need to use to help alleviate these symptoms. And it's funny, but one of the biggest things is all of these symptoms are enhanced by stress. And I know that my whole memory and ability to think clearly and all that, when I'm stressed, that, get, that I, still, I still have some, some of these symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but yeah. it's, it's only under, it's really under extreme stressful circumstances. Besides that, you know, it, it doesn't affect my day-to-day life anymore. But in the beginning, it was really, really scary. But having the knowledge really helps, helps you get through it and, you know, know, know that it's worth hanging on and right. staying sober. Okay. Well, well, actually, so I'll move to the, the next one, which is emotional overreaction or numbness. And people with emotional problems in sobriety tend to overreact. When things happen that require two units of emotional reaction, they tend to react with ten. It's like holding the times key down on a calculator. You may find yourself becoming angry over what may later seem a trivial matter. You may feel more anxious or excited than you you have reason to be. When this overreaction puts more stress on the nervous system than it can handle, there is an emotional shutdown. If this happens to you, you become emotionally numb, unable to feel anything. And even when you know you should feel something, you do not. You may swing from one mood to another without knowing why. And I know for me, I had just, I don't have a specific, specific incident in my mind. I just know I had, I have memories of just being like on top of the world, happy and then just, just angry and then in tears and so just all over the place. And someone taught me, they said, when you get like that, just scream out loud, stop. And for some reason, it would just, hearing my voice, my own voice would just stop me. And I would calm down and just be able to sit with my emotions. But, you know, dealing with emotions in early sobriety is tough because we're dealing with them for the first time. How about you, ladies? When when you think about how much alcohol is a quote-unquote mood regulator, you know, it's a depressant. And effectively, what I one of the things that I learned in rehab, which is, is part of the reason why pause occurs, is that it travels over these neural pathways in your brain, and so your brain forgets how to make regulated emotions on its own. It's you've been manufacturing emotions, even if you're not a daily around-the-clock drinker. Your coping mechanism, whether it's happy or sad or angry or irritated or scared, has been a, a substance to numb it or enhance it or avoid it. So when you remove the substance, your brain is, is literally rewiring itself. It's either finding new neural pathways to travel or it's re-establishing its old behavioral patterns over the old neural pathways. So when you think about it in that context, having this kind of, your, your regulator is completely discombobulated and it needs to re-regulate itself without the assistance of drugs or alcohol. And when I, I also had the, I like the way that you put that, I had the benefit of several rehabilitative (laughs) facilities over the course of my early sobriety. And when I, when I finally really wrapped my, my discombobulated mind around the idea, it made so 
much sense to me because that's what it felt like. It felt like synapses misfiring, and then I would go flat. I would just go numb and flat, and I wouldn't feel anything. And you, it's literally because you're you're sort of fritzed out. Your brain just says enough, and it shuts down. It's a it's actually a self protective. Um, mechanism that if you know it's happening and why it's happening, it can keep you from trying to numb out with a drink. Better that your mind numbs itself out than you numb out by, with alcohol. It's while it relearns how to have appropriate responses. Yeah, I feel like plenty of times, even now, I am able to kind of shut my brain off. I know, Ellie, you've talked before about how just doing mindless things like playing video games that totally just let you kind of escape I feel strongly that that's a great skill and one that I obviously didn't know before getting sober. And I have no guilt about escaping when I need to as long as I do anything at all except for drinks. So I feel like that's one of the things that is a, just, it's just one of the things that I'm able to do for myself. That's a really good point. Yep. Yeah. To be able to find healthy it's actually healthy to find ways to numb your brain that doesn't involve alcohol. Video games are definitely one of them. Trashy novels was another one. I didn't want a novel that made me think too much, but something, you know, really <laughs> simple. Hey, I, mean, or, I mean, I talk like all the those. time about watching mindless TV or I read recovery blogs or I read books that are really just cheesy and I don't have to think about it. And yeah. it really helps. Yeah. It did does still yeah so the next thing that we wanted to address has to do with the sleep problems and most recovering people experience sleep oh, problems some of them are temporary and some are lifelong the most common in early recovery is unusual or disturbing dreams these dreams may interfere with your ability to get the sleep you need, but they become less frequent and less severe as the length of abstinence increases. Even if you do not experience unusual dreams, you may have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep. You may experience changes in your sleep patterns, sleeping for long periods of a at a time, or sleeping at different times of the day. Some of these patterns may never return to quote-unquote normal, but most people are able to adjust to them without severe difficulty. And... I only have two quick points to add to this, Lisa. I know that you have some things that you wanted to contribute. And Amanda, I'm sure you do too. But drinking dreams were my most common symptom in early recovery. And they happen with much less frequency. But when they do happen now, they're they're terrifying. And so as, they're you know, terrible. I would have the, the very, very, very vivid drinking dreams. And I would wake up and be unable to go back to sleep. And they did get better over time. But the thing that I think was the most pronounced with me in terms of sleep is sleeping a lot and at irregular times of the day. I have a particular memory of being at my parents' condominium for a vacation when I was about five months sober. And I would get up with my kids in the morning and feed them breakfast, and my parents were up, and so they were sort of watching the kids, and I would lie back down on the couch and sleep hard for two hours, snoring, can't wake you up, Ellie, kind of. And it was actually very disruptive in my life because, of course, at that point, they thought I was either on drugs or drinking. But it was my body's way. I mean, your body needs rest. It needs to rehabilitate itself. And brain would get overloaded, like you mentioned. And I realized slowly after, especially somebody who had been in the program for a while, explained it to me that that was the only safe way to completely disappear, to, to find that 
place mm-hmm. where I could numb out. And as a busy mom and business owner and somebody who's used to going a million miles an hour, it was very difficult to permit myself to sleep a lot for a while. But I think it actually helped make the symptoms of pause get better because it reduced my stress and increased my health. So if you are an early sobriety and trying to reduce your stress, permit yourself sleeping at odd times of day, but you may want to forewarn your family because for my family, seeing me sleeping at a weird time of day triggered them. They were used to seeing me do that because I had been drinking, and now I was doing it because my body was trying to rejuvenate itself. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. When I first got sober, I did sleep a lot. I would go to bed as soon as I put my children to bed. Literally, I would go straight from their bedrooms into mine and just throw myself into bed and no books, no TV, nothing. I just wanted to sleep. My body was exhausted. And at the time, I wasn't sure what was going on with me. I just knew that I had to sleep. And that lasted maybe, I would say, a couple months. And then something really totally the opposite happened, and I found that I couldn't sleep, and I would kind of get up. I would try to sleep. I would sleep for a few hours, and I would get up and start doing really, really busy things, such as painting my house and in the middle of the night, (laughs) which is not exactly an example of sanity, but I don't know. It was just something I did kind of to keep my brain, I guess, busy. And anyway, now, even after all this time sober, I still struggle with finding a balance and sleeping. And uh, for whatever reason, my brain seems to go into overdrive at nighttime when the rest of the world is sleeping. And I told someone recently I would make a really great vampire because I can (laughs) literally stay up all night long. But I recognize that it's important to at least try to get a handle on my sleep pattern and my sleep behavior. So I've made a really conscious effort lately, I mean, starting like maybe yesterday, to do better, and I'm going to really try hard to stick to it, just because I do recognize that I need it. I need it to, to be able to function better every day, but I think it varies so much for all of us. We each have such different experiences with all of this, but for me, the, the sleep thing is a real issue, and that I've never really been a big sleeper, even as a child, even before the drinking of that. So that, too, does get better. If you think you'll never sleep again, I think that you will. 
And I also say, and I know we, we don't give medical advice here, and I have no idea, you know, I don't want to give anybody advice and it'd be the wrong thing to say, but I know for me personally, I took melatonin, which is a, a natural sleep. What is it? It's like a sleep aid. Yeah, well, it replenishes. Sleep aid, it's supposed to be kind of like a, not a vitamin, but anyway, I, would, I took that, and I know you have to be careful about how much you take it, but I took that, and that would help, at least help it's you fall completely, asleep. It's completely non-narcotic. It's herbal. Oh, right, 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 it's yeah. Definitely, Benadryl. You, you just don't want to. I think the reason why you want to be careful is that you want your body to eventually figure out how to fall asleep right. on its own. But that when you're in the early stages, so whatever works that, is what. Yeah, you yeah. Get whatever works to get your body sleeping is important to do. Right. So if you feel like you need something like yeah. that, then then I think it's okay. Go for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's my little share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. I mean, mine is just the well, same. I couldn't sleep at night. I guess it, I. I could forever, it seemed, and it would drive me crazy because I got up early to go to recovery meetings, so even though I wasn't working for the first five weeks, I'd, I, I would be up at 3 o'clock in the morning just staring at the ceiling and going crazy, and then I'd finally fall asleep, and my alarm would go off, and then I'd come home, and I, but then I was full of energy all day because I, I was on this incredible high of being sober. And, and then when I finally went back to work, that was a real adjustment. And it, it took a couple of weeks, and I, fi I think my clock finally reset itself and said, okay, you really have to sleep. And so I feel like it's straightened out for the most part. But I've been kind of going through that again, and I finally figured out it has to do with one of the things we're going to talk about later in the show, which is nutrition. And I eat ice cream every night before bed, and so I have to stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> One final thought on this. Also, another thing that I learned while I was at one of uh, my final rehab was that when you're drinking, particularly at night or before you fall asleep, that you are actually interfering with your REM sleep. And so, once again, your brain is not. You could go for years and not really have good, consistent REM sleep. It's one. It's one of the reasons why your sleep patterns are irregular in early sobriety. It's because you're either sleeping too much to catch up, or your brain doesn't know how to go into REM sleep. I mean, all of these have physiological bases to them. Mm -hmm. So you're not going insane. It's right. the fact that your brain, and the, the key to all of this, as we'll continue to talk about, is the further away you get from your last drink, the better these things are going to get. But to have the tools to weather them is important, and to know that it's really, really normal to have and these things And it's going happen. to pass. We might say and that a hundred times tonight. Yeah. We'll just keep saying that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the next thing we're going to discuss is the physical coordination problems, which is a very serious Paul's problem. Though perhaps not as common as the others, it's difficulty with physical coordination. Common symptoms are dizziness, trouble with balance, problems with coordination between hand and eye, and slow reflexes. These result, in, these result in clumsiness and accident proneness. This is how the term dry drunk came into being. When alcoholics appeared drunk because of stumbling and clumsiness but had not been drinking, they were said to be dry drunk. They had the appearance of being intoxicated without actually being drunk. And I don't really, this was not something that I personally experienced. I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it has to do with the level of alcohol you drank prior to getting sober. I don't know if it's, I'm really not sure. But I don't, the only thing I 
vaguely remember is I did have just a few weird things like opening things or some like sometimes a little bit harder for me than they had been. But I don't I didn't have any really big problems with physical coordination. Did you ladies experience this? This is Ellie. I did. I didn't know that that's what it was, but I did. And it was particularly troubling in the first three or four months of sobriety. It got better pretty quickly. But it was devastating because I, you know, nobody trusted me at that point. And one of the things that I remember the most was sounding kind of slurry, like my speech patterns were a little bit slower. And so people, and I was caused, I mean, I was getting the hairy eyeball from everybody anyway. Mm -hmm. And then to add slower speech patterns and definitely clumsiness. And I would, you know, I'd drop something and go, I'm not drunk. You know, I was, <laughs> it, it just made my, the relationship that I had with my immediate family members who had been the most affected by my drinking had witnessed things like sleeping a lot and clumsiness and it just, it was, and it was scary. It was really scary. And I physically had a lot of damage to my body as a result of my drinking. And perhaps that's why this was worse for me than maybe for other people. But it was one of the, one of the things that cleared up the quickest, although I will also say that I have always been a physically uncoordinated person, <laughs> so it, maybe that's another reason why it was more pronounced in me. What, I knew that I was finally getting a lot better in recovery when I just had this ridiculous fall in front of a whole bunch of people, and I just started laughing, and get up, I got up, and I kept walking, and I didn't feel like, oh my gosh, they're going to think I'm drunk. Like, I finally mm-hmm. realized, oh, I'm making progress. Now I can just fall down like a regular person. Without <laughs> feeling guilty and bad about exactly. it. No, regular people don't have to jump up and go, I didn't fall because I'm drunk. I'm not yeah. drunk. Stop I'm not drunk. drunk. <laughs> Hey friends, that's the end of this shortened version of this conversation. It does extend uh, closer to an hour and a half, which you can hear over on Patreon. Uh, Patreon members have access to our entire backlist full-length episodes ad-free. So if that interests you, you'll find a link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash the bubble hour and have a look at how to access that. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you all the best until next time. Take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness head on.
person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear when you say I won't different. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face I take back a little dignity. And I'm looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Oh, you said I'm when you say oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, you said 